Well, uh, well, uh, every time Christians meet together, uh, what we do is we, we read the Bible together, uh, which we've uh, done already, and uh, we spend a bit of time uh, thinking about it as we're taught from the Bible. And so uh, we're going to think about uh, the words that we've read together just then, uh, and we'll be doing that for the next uh, 25 minutes or so. Um, but uh, I'm going to lead us in prayer and ask that God help us uh, to listen uh, and to understand and to respond appropriately uh, to the things that God is saying to us through his word this morning. So uh, join me uh, with me as I pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for bringing us together this morning uh, to hear your word. Uh, we thank you that you are a God uh, who is personal, uh, who speaks to us, uh, and who uh, tells us uh, of your ways. And so we pray this morning that you would help us to listen well, uh, and uh, we ask that you would uh, please give us understanding of the things that we are hearing uh, so that we can respond in a right manner uh, to the things that you say. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, friends, uh, if our local gyms are anything to go by, there are many, many people who are feeling very guilty out there during Easter. Uh, there are lots of people feeling guilty about eating too many Easter eggs, uh, perhaps you're one of them, uh, or too many hot cross buns, or too much food in general. And so many gyms are advertising that if you come to them this Easter, you can have a guilt-free Easter. How is this possible? Uh, how does this work? Well, one advertisement for a local gym that I saw uh, recently put it well. It said, come to us and work off your hot cross buns with a picture of a bottom uh, on there. Apparently bun means bottom these days. Uh, it's the idea that you can work off your guilt by doing something good, isn't it? To balance out the bad. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I reckon that's how many people view their relationship with God, isn't it? You know, we uh, are all guilty of doing bad things in our lives from time to time. I'm sure you'll all agree. Uh, we all have things that we are ashamed of in our lives. And so in order to be accepted by God, you just need to do some good things to balance out those bad things in your life. I wonder whether that's how you think about it your relationship with God at times. Uh, of course, many people try to do this through religious means. Uh, you know, you go to church or a temple or some other religious place and you take part in all the religious rituals and the religious good works, thinking that they will somehow balance out the bad and God will be pleased. But even if you're not particularly religious, uh, it's still a very common way of thinking uh, about life, isn't it? You just need to do more good things uh, than bad things in the hope that one day if I do die and there happens to be a God, then, well, he will be happy with that. Now, friends, what is the way to be guilt-free before God? Uh, what is the way to live life now and to face death guilt-free before God. Now, uh, we're going to explore this question by uh, looking at the Bible together. 
and uh, we've just read a, from a passage in the letter, of, uh, letter to the Colossians, which is a letter written by one of God's spokespeople called the Apostle Paul. And uh, he's writing to a group of new Christians in what is now uh, modern-day Turkey. But notice that in this passage, Paul begins with a warning to these new Christians not to be taken captive, uh, literally not to be kidnapped by empty lies. Uh, You can see it there in verse 8. If you have a Bible there with you, and uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can wave your arm around and one of the ushers can bring you a Bible. But uh, have a look with me at chapter 2, verse 8. Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Uh, Now, the word philosophy that you see there is not talking about what you and I might think of when we think about the word philosophy. Uh, Paul isn't prohibiting Christians from reading about philosophers like Aristotle or Plato or Confucius. But the philosophy that Paul has in mind here uh, seems to be a religious philosophy, a religious way of thinking about things, which is evident throughout the letter to the Colossians. It's the way of thinking that says that your acceptance before God is dependent on the things that you do. Uh, the foods that you eat or don't eat, the rituals, the religious rituals and the good works that you perform in your life. Uh, it's a way of thinking that's alive and well to this very day, isn't it? It's in all the major religions of the world. But what does Paul say? Uh, well, notice that shockingly, he says quite bluntly that this way of thinking is empty deceit. In other words, it's without substance and it's built on lies. In the end, it will amount to nothing. Why? Well, it's because this way of thinking is human in origin rather than something that God himself says. It's according to human tradition, notice, rather than according to Christ. One of the most stupid things I've ever done as a young person is hitchhike. Uh, It was in the early 90s. I went backpacking uh, with some of my friends in the forest uh, somewhere out there. Uh, We ran out of food and water, and so we flagged down this passing van driven by a stranger. I think he had a moustache. And we hitched the ride out of the forest. Uh, Looking back on it, it was the most stupid thing I've ever done, because this was around about the time when Ivan Malat was on the loose Uh, the infamous backpacker murderer. And sitting in the back of this dark van, being driven to who knows where, uh, it suddenly dawned on us that we may be in a lot of trouble here. (laughs) What Paul says is, do not be kidnapped by false ways of thinking, by empty and deceitful ways of thinking that will not lead to life, but will lead to death. Empty ways of thinking, deceitful ways of thinking that will not bring you to God, but but will take you away from him. But the striking thing here, I think, is that you notice he's speaking not to non-Christian people, but to Christian people. In other words, he's warning Christians 
about being taken captive by empty and deceitful ideas that subtly seem to offer more than what Christ offers. You know, sometimes even Christian people can end up thinking that Christ is not enough. Don't you think? Uh, Perhaps you are a Christian person and you're frustrated by your sinfulness. You find that sin keeps on crushing you. And perhaps you are beginning to think that Christ is not enough. Surely there must be some other solution to this than Jesus. Or perhaps you're a Christian person and you constantly look around and you see other people who seem to be so joyful and insightful and who seem to be operating on a different spiritual plane to you. They are so godly. And you kind of think to yourself, well, am I missing out on something here? Perhaps there is something out there more than Jesus that I need. You see, it's not uncommon for Christians to feel incomplete in their Christian lives. And so many Christians go looking for solutions outside of Jesus. Friends, do not believe every so-called Christian YouTube clip that your friends send you. Do not believe every preacher on the Christian television channel. Do not believe every fad, latest fad in Christianity that promises instant godliness or a more complete spiritual experience of God. For it is possible to be taken captive by ideas which are not according to the Christ that Paul teaches. And if you believe that such things can never happen to you, then perhaps you are the most susceptible. Why then is it such a tragedy to be taken captive in this way? Well, Paul goes on to explain that it's because if you belong to Jesus, then you have it all already. You are complete. You have everything. And so why would you go looking anywhere else? And you can see it there in verse 9 where he says, verse 9, For in him, that is Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of every rule and authority. Now you see what he's saying here. He's saying the astonishing thing that All the fullness of God is in Jesus. You know, the God who created all things and flung the stars into space, as we were seeing about this morning? Well, that God is in Jesus. You know, the one who sustains all things, including your life and and my life? That God is in Jesus. You know, the one who rules over everything in this universe? That God dwells bodily. In Jesus. Notice that he's not saying that you can find a bit of God in Jesus and you can find a bit of God uh, in other places, perhaps in other religions or other places. No, he says the whole fullness of deity dwells in him, all of God, such that if you want to know God, then you can only know him in this one. Jesus. That's why it's such a tragedy to be 
taken captive by ideas that lead you away from Christ. For to walk away from him is literally to walk away from God himself. But notice, friends, that Paul says that these Colossian Christians have been filled in him. The expression in him is one that Paul uses often. It refers to being uh, united with Jesus by putting your trust in him or, or your faith in him as the Lord and master of your life. You see, when these Colossian people put their trust in the Lord Jesus, they were so filled by, uh, by God in every way that they were complete. Uh, if you are a Christian person who is united with Jesus by faith, then this is what God says to you. You have everything. You do not lack anything. You are complete. I wonder whether you believe this. But what is it exactly that Christians have? What is it that we are filled with? Well, I want to suggest in what follows that Paul mentions four things that I'd like us to take away from today. Four things. Firstly, and perhaps very strangely, notice that Paul says, you have circumcision. That's a very strange thing to be talking about on a Good Friday, isn't it? But you'll see it there in verse 11, uh, verse 11, that Paul says to the Colossian Christians that in him you were circumcised. Now, uh, some of you might know that circumcision is the you know, that uncomfortable practice of uh, cutting off a bit of skin in males uh, and discarding it. And it was meant to be a, a sign that you belonged uh, to the covenant people of God in the Old Testament. Uh, it was a Jewish thing. It was the way you became a Jew. And so it's strange, don't you think, that Paul says this to people who are largely non-Jewish people or Gentile people. What is he talking about? Uh, well, Paul is clearly not talking about physical circumcision, for you'll notice there in that verse, in verse 11, that this circumcision is one that is made without hands. And so I think Paul is using circumcision here as a bit of a metaphor, and it's a metaphor for death. Uh, you see, just as in circumcision you would cut off a bit of skin and that skin would die, well, this is saying that if you have put your faith in Jesus and your trust in Jesus, then what God does is he removes your old life of sin and rebellion to die on the cross with Jesus. You see, friends, uh, this is how you fight sin in your Christian life, isn't it? It's not by being taken captive by religious ideas, but it's by reminding yourself that if you have put your trust in Jesus, then your old life has gone. It's been done away with by Jesus. The power of sin has now been broken. And you can actually say no to sin and start growing in righteousness. But secondly, notice that these Colossian Christians have been raised to new life. It's not only that their old life has died, 
It's that they have now been given a new life together with Jesus who rose from the dead. And uh, you'll see it there halfway through verse 12 where Paul says, You were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. But friends, did you notice who it is that have been made alive here by God? Uh, You'll notice in verse 13, Paul goes on to describe these people as those who were once dead in trespasses. That's not a very flattering description of them, is it? You see, they were people who had trespassed and sinned against God. In other words, they were people who willfully disobeyed God and his laws and rejected him and his ways in their lives. And such was the offence that they caused God by living this way that God can describe them as being dead. You see, friends, this is what you and I are like by our very nature. We are people who willfully disobey God from time to time. We ignore him. We reject him. We don't bother to find out more about him because we don't want to live his way. And the Bible says that by nature we are dead. We are cut off from God. We are alienated from him who is the source of all life and all goodness. We are like a flower that has been cut off at the roots. We are like an iPhone that has walked away from its charger. We are dead, and our physical deaths are just a confirmation that we all deserve an even greater death, which is eternal death and separation from God. And yet, can you see here that when the Colossian people put their faith in Jesus, began trusting him as the Lord and Master and King of their lives, well, they were made alive by God. It wasn't something they did by their own religious works and rituals. No, dead people cannot do anything to make themselves alive. But in God's kindness and power, they were given this new life and a fresh start with God. But how is it that these Colossian Christians were made alive? Uh, Well, the third thing you can see there is that it's because these Christians have been forgiven by God. Uh, Paul says midway through verse 13 that God made these Colossian Christians alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This is set aside, nailing it to the cross. You see, Paul says that the Colossian Christians were made alive because they have been forgiven all of their trespasses and sins. I think uh, one of the most beautiful words in this whole passage is that little word, all. Don't you think? Uh, It's all been forgiven. It's not as though they were forgiven the small sins, but not forgiven the big ones. It's not as though they were forgiven their past sins, but now they have to just kind of work off their their future sins for themselves, as you would work off your guilt at the gym. No, all their trespasses and sins, past, present and future, have been forgiven by God. 
And did you notice the basis on which these trespasses and sins were forgiven? Uh, you can see there that it was by having their record of debt cancelled. Uh, what is this record of debt? Well, the picture here is of a huge book with a record of every transgression and every sin that the Colossians had committed against God. And at the bottom of this uh, record or this uh, piece of paper is recorded the penalty of death. This is the legal debt that they owed God. And yet what Paul says is that wonderfully, this entire record of debt was cancelled. It was wiped clean. It was done away with by God nailing it to the cross. Uh, this is a bit embarrassing for an Anglican minister to admit, uh, but a few years ago, um, I got a speeding ticket uh, in the mail. Um, and as much as I tried to deny it to my wife, um, as much as I tried to deny it to myself, um, the evidence was right there in front of me. Uh, on the ticket were the facts. You know, it recorded the speed I was going at. It recorded the date of the offence, the time of the offence, the location of the offence. It even said they had photographic evidence of the offence. And right at the bottom of the ticket was the debt that I owed to the government for, this, for the crime that I had committed. But imagine if such a ticket existed of your whole life. And on this ticket is printed every single thought that you have ever thought and every word that you have ever spoken and every deed that you have ever done. How would you feel about the existence of a record like that? Now, no doubt, if it's a record of everything, there'll be things there that you know, uh, you're proud of and you're happy for other people to know about. But if you're anything like me, I'm guessing that on that record will be things that you are deeply ashamed of. And you would want to try desperately to hide this record from every other person that you know. Is that true? Things that only you know about. But the fact is, you cannot hide these things from God. And you will one day be called upon to pay your debt to him. And so, friends, what the Bible tells us repeatedly is that your greatest need and my greatest need before God is not to have our record of debt balanced, because if we're just balancing our record of debt, then our guilt remains. But what we desperately need is for our record of debt to be cancelled, to be done away with, to be wiped clean by being nailed to the cross. But hang on, you say. Wasn't Jesus the one who was nailed to the cross? Wasn't Jesus the one who died on that very first Good Friday? How then is it that in this passage God says that it is my record of debt that was nailed to the cross? Well, the only answer possible in the Bible is that when Jesus died on the cross, he died as our substitute. 
He died in the place of trespasses and sinners like you and like me so that he could pay that debt that we owe to God and cancel that record of debt forever that stood against us so that we might have eternal life rather than eternal death. And friends, it wasn't just a man who died on the cross. For the life of one man will only ever be able to pay for the life of another man, isn't it? But it's because Jesus was the one in whom all the fullness of deity dwelt that he could pay for the trespasses and sins of the whole world, including you and me, and bring forgiveness. Friends, what a wonderful saviour we celebrate on Good Friday. And so friends, if you are here this morning and you know that you've been living your life without Jesus, then can you see from God's word that your greatest need is to be forgiven by God by having your record of debt cancelled before him. You need your record wiped clean and destroyed. And the good news that Christians celebrate at Easter is that God indeed wants to forgive you. And he's shown it by sending his son to come and die on a cross so that he can cancel this record of debt that currently stands against you. And so will you come to Jesus? Will you put your trust in him? Will you start following him as your good and gracious ruler and king? and trust in what he has done for you in his work on the cross? Will you turn from a life of ignoring him, and will you find out more about him and live his way? For those who come to Jesus in this way are promised the forgiveness of all their trespasses and the cancellation of their record of debt. And if you are here and you have already put your faith in Jesus, I hope that... uh, you can see this refreshing uh, fact in the Bible that no more guilt remains. Even if you sometimes feel guilty before God, which Christians can feel often, what God says is that in reality, objectively, your sin is no more. That record of death was taken away at the cross. And so, friends, uh, let's serve this Jesus, not out of guilt, but out of a deep thankfulness uh, for what he has done for us. For finally, uh, the promise to those who turn to Jesus and follow him as their Lord is that there will be no more condemnation from God. Uh, You can see this in the final part of our passage in verse 15, uh, where Paul says that at the cross... Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. It's a staggering thing, don't you think, uh, for Paul to say, uh, or Paul to describe the death of Jesus as a huge triumph or victory, isn't it? I mean, if you were there on the very first Good Friday, watching Jesus dying on the cross, it would hardly have seemed like a victory, don't you think? I mean, uh, as we've already heard, he was a man who was stripped naked and beaten, a man who was mocked and hung up on a cross to die in humiliation and shame. 
Here is a man who claimed to be God's king, but who seemed to be defeated by the powerful rulers of this world who sentenced him to death. And yet Paul says here that this very same Jesus is the one who won a great victory, not only over the physical rulers and authorities who put him to death, but also the evil rulers and authorities in this spiritual world opposed to God. But how was this a victory? Well, you can see there that we are told of Jesus disarming the rulers and authorities. Um, I think the image here is of um, soldiers on the losing side being stripped of their weapons as they kneel in humiliation before the victor. But what is the weapon that Jesus is disarming them of? Well, it can only be, don't you think, that these spiritual rulers and authorities are being disarmed from their ability to accuse God's people of guilt because their record of debt has now been done away with at the cross. Here is the victory of our Lord Jesus Christ. It was a victory where Jesus defeated not only sin and death, but the devil and all the evil powers that would oppress and accuse God's people of guilt. For Jesus has removed the record of debt from us. And so it's in his victory that those who belong to him now have no condemnation before God. And so, friends, are you someone who can enjoy a guilt-free Easter today? Because you are someone who has put your faith in this Jesus and in his death, which is where the victory was won.